Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. We've been in, if you've been with us, uh, the Proverbs for roughly 13 weeks at this point. But we are at a distinct part where things are changing. In fact, the book of Proverbs is composed of roughly five sections. Uh, Section one is what's called Solomon's Prologue. Those are the first nine chapters, and those are meant to be kind of the singular extended discourse from uh, Solomon speaking as a father to his reader being his metaphorical children. And now we're transitioning, if you have your Bible open, to chapter 10. The very first thing we see is the heading, um, and not the heading in italics, that's what's added by your translators, but actually the first part of Proverbs 10 verse 1 says the Proverbs of Solomon. And this means we've entered into the portion of the book which contains what we generally think of when we think about Proverbs. We talked about what a proverb was way back when we started this series, and a proverb is simply a literary unit. It's a piece of language that is meant to teach, to instruct, by comparing and contrasting. That's why they sometimes sound like riddles, but it actually isn't meant to conceal the truth, but actually to uh, exhume the truth, to discover the truth. And our favorite example of a cultural proverb that shows the power of that is you don't tug on Superman's cape, you don't spit into the wind, you don't pull the mask off the old Lone Ranger, you don't mess around with Jim. We don't need to know who Jim is, but we know by comparison That if you don't spit into the wind, you don't tug on Superman's cape, you don't pull the mask off the old Lone Ranger, if you don't do that, then we know we shouldn't do that to Jim. Jim is not one we want to mess around with. Even if we don't know him, we know the contrasts and the comparisons that dictate our decisions. And one commentator said this perfectly when she says that Proverbs create rhymes, not with sound, but with thoughts. It's a really helpful idea when it comes to thinking about the Proverbs. And we can actually, in just the short five verses we see in our text today, we can actually see this thought rhyme pulled out by terms of contrasts. Uh, What Marshall just read for you, maybe you heard the primary contrast that's going to be in this, and it's going to be between the righteous and the wise and the fool or the wicked. And look at how he does this. Uh, We start to see three areas of life that are affected by your desire to either be wise or foolish, to be righteous or wicked. And so it's not going to be on the screen right now, but if you have a Bible, you can kind of glance at verse 1 and verse 5, and here we see wisdom's provision in your relationships. And so in verse 1 and 5, we see this familial language uh, that talks about how our choices impact our community. And then in verses two and four, you see wisdom's provision in your own quality of life. In those two verses, we encounter this economic language of comparison and contrast between the righteous and the wicked when it comes to profit or poverty and riches and death. But the central point of Solomon here is actually seen in verse five, where we actually see God's provision to the wise. In other words, if you're someone 
who wants to find the provision of joy in your own life, if you're one who wants to provide the community that you are in peace, then you must first understand the relationship you have with God and his role in your life. That's the center point of all he's showing here. And the big picture we're going to see today in Proverbs 10 verses 1 through 5 is this. And that is that seeing God's provision allows us to trust in him, to turn to him, and to work heartily for him. So trusting, turning, and working, those are going to be our three points as we look at this text. But let's start by looking at our first point, Proverbs 10 verses 1 and 2. So it begins, the Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. So have you ever had a a new movie that came out or a new restaurant that rolled into town that you really wanted to try, but you had one of your friends who was able to go watch it or taste it first? And that is sometimes a wonderful blessing, but sometimes it's a challenge because what if they bring back a poor review and they say it really wasn't that great? Well, now you've got this awkward dilemma of two choices, right? You could either take their word for it and never experience it, or you could say, well, I want to try it for myself. And we could do that safely in a lot of ways because some of us have different tastes for food and for film and We can go and we can say, well, maybe this person doesn't really have the experience or the knowledge to actually offer an opinion that matters on this subject. My son, Owen, is a poor food critic because unless it's fried and covered in ketchup, he's not going to like it. And so when he critiques his mother's food, it means less to her than it would if she asked me my opinion on her food. So when God's word speaks to us, we understand that we are not encountering another person like us offering an opinion like ours. He is speaking as the God who created all things, who existed before all things, who through him all things were created and nothing which is created exists apart from him, which means not only is the creator, he is the author and therefore has authority over us. So, when God through Solomon says, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, or perhaps your translation says, ill-gotten treasures do not profit, you could either do this the hard way or the easy way. The hard way is to doubt that God actually knows what he's talking about, and instead to go and taste the foolishness of disobedience or adventure on your own. Or the easy way is you can trust that God knows what he's talking about and you could see that he gives us passages like this precisely because he cares for us and wants us to experience joy instead of folly. And this is our first point today is that seeing God's provision allows us to trust in him. And Solomon does something really important here that we need to recognize that helps us orient how we view our trust in God. Because more times than not, when we're reading the Proverbs, what we're going to encounter as we continue to work through the book is that generally, it is the righteous and the obedient person who ends up having the most treasures. 
you avoid foolish loss, you avoid sin, you avoid the the pitfalls of this world, and slowly, bit by bit, it says you're going to be rewarded in this life. It's not a promise of riches. This isn't a prosperity gospel, but it says generally that's true. But here, he affirms that it is possible to gain treasures in ill-gotten ways, to gain it by wickedness. In other words, he means is that if you choose to find treasures in this world by not relying on God and by pursuing your own gain, your own view of treasures, and your own view of pleasures, you might actually find it. What you'll actually find is that treasure by worldly standards is actually remarkably easy to get. Remember, it was just a few weeks ago or when it came to the promise of sexual satisfaction, he talked about how cheap it was. He says the price of a prostitute is a loaf of bread. This might be great news to us to hear that worldly treasure is something that you can actually attain to. But behind this is actually this contrast that says this might not be the good news that you are hoping for. And if anyone knew this, it was Solomon. Solomon was writing this He was the king of Israel. He was, in the the span of the Bible, the most uh, powerful, the wealthiest, and the wisest king there ever was. How do we know this? Because God says, I'm going to make you all of those things. And yet there was a time in Solomon's life where he asked himself the question that maybe you have. Where can I find the most pleasure in life? is obeying God and trusting in his provision, my greatest joy. And so what he did, and this is so humbling for us, he took all of the wealth that God gave him. He took all of the wisdom that God gave him. He took all of the power that God gave him. And he emptied those bank accounts to find pleasure for himself. Whatever capacity you might have to explore the treasures of this world, Solomon had more. He had more sex partners than anyone else. He built his kingdom to look more lavish than anyone else. He had more food and more wine than anybody else. He had parties that would make Woodstock jealous. And you know what the problem was? It worked. He found a reward in it. Look at what he says in his biography in Ecclesiastes chapter two, verses nine through 10. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. So you hear that key word in there, it's repeated three times, toil, toil, toil. He busied himself with the toil of finding pleasure and his heart spared no cost. Nothing stood between him and his pursuit of satisfaction. You see, you and I can both busy ourselves with pleasure as we see fit. We can plot, we can toil, we can labor, we can plan to attain worldly treasure. And the problem isn't that you won't find it. The problem is actually that you will find it. And the problem which Proverbs is showing us and God wants you to recognize is the problem that our souls know to be true 
which our minds often fail to accept. And that is that whatever treasures you get in this world, they do not profit. They don't last. We know how hard it is to labor for treasures by worldly standards, and we are quick to pour ourselves out to that end. We know how to toil, and the problem we know is that treasure isn't hard to get. Instead, what we really realize is treasures detached from God are immensely hard to enjoy. And look at what Solomon says right after this in verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained in all or under the sun. Though he found his reward, though he had a reward, that's the language he used, though he found pleasure, his heart spared no expense, he struggled to enjoy it. Easy to get, difficult to enjoy. Solomon searched for riches because he thought that in these riches, in these comforts, in these parties, in these relationships, in this lifestyle, that it would satisfy him. But his desire for treasure was a wrong prescription for a real problem. And we get a glimpse into the reality of this problem in the book of Luke, where Jesus shares a parable of a rich young man. And that's all the info the Bible really gives on us or gives to us about him. But this parable is often called the rich young fool. Because as this parable unfolds, we see that this man is certainly the fool. And this man has stumbled into a wonderful problem that perhaps you might hope to have one day. And that is that he has too much treasure. His fields are so productive that he's running out of space. But look at what Jesus says about him in Luke 12, starting in verse 16. And he, that's Jesus, told a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? What's the moral of the story? Where here Jesus gives it to us. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So here's something really important for us to see because when we think about our hearts, like we're all here at church on Sunday, very few of us probably came in here thinking that I am just the most wicked person in the world. And if we just think of wickedness in terms of us being the worst murderer or embezzler there ever was, we miss the thrust of what's going on in this parable because the truth was this man didn't gain his crops by extorting the poor. He didn't steal his seeds. Instead, he was just a really productive farmer. But it became foolish. 
it became wicked, where in looking at his provision, he began to speak to his soul. Did you see that? He said, soul, here is your pleasure. Relax, nothing can touch you. Relax, you have comfort. Eat and drink for you are provided for. You see, we need to be careful of where there are times where perhaps on social media or perhaps to others, we think we're talking to them, but we're really talking to our own souls. When we say, hey, look at this lifestyle I'm living, could it be that perhaps we're saying to our own souls, be content for, look at, look at all this affirmation you get from people. You're living the dream of everybody else's soul, relax. Be merry. You saw the movie before anyone. You got to go eat the food before anyone. You had the greatest adventure of anyone. Be merry. But when we start speaking to our soul, God starts speaking to us. And his answer was a firm one, wasn't it? He says, you fool. Tonight, your soul is required of you. And all that you possess, to whom will it belong? In other words, nothing you built can save you. When your soul is demanded, your barns, no matter how big, your Instagram posts, no matter how many likes, it cannot deliver you. Before you start speaking to your own soul about the pleasures of this world, you need to ask yourself if that treasure can actually save you from death. You see, death is so normative in our existence that the biggest lie we come to believe is that death isn't a problem. Death is the problem. And no one, no matter how big their barn, no matter how lavish their party has ever been able to escape it. The biggest problem you have in life is that one day you die. But... This is where we turn to the contrast of Proverbs 10, verse 2. Look again at it. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. You see, we often turn to the vices of this world to bring us life, but the problem is these treasures cannot profit this way. But righteousness delivers from death. Worldly solutions get caught up in the filter of the tombstone. But righteousness does not. It endures through it all. And so righteousness is a big theological word. What does it mean? Well, the Hebrew word has a lot of different meanings, but primarily there are two senses behind it. And the first is relational loyalty, and the second is moral purity. And so it's talking about righteousness. It's talking about this faithfulness to God and this right action, this doing right, not doing wrong. In contrast to those who forsake God and turn to wickedness, is righteousness which clings to God in relational obedience. We saw a picture of this righteousness in Proverbs 5, right? It is the Proverbs 5 person who clings to the faithfulness and relational intimacy of his spouse instead of the deceptive comforts of the seductive woman. That's what righteousness looks like. It is a relational clinging to what is good. But all of us know our hearts, don't we? We know how fickle, and full of failure we are. We know that we cannot walk well enough on the path of righteousness 
to be spared from the punishment our sins deserve, we are the dummies who look at all that God has done, all he has spoken, and we refuse to trust him. We refuse to see it as simple as fool and wise, but instead we justify ourselves into our sin. Our problem is not only that sinful treasures don't satisfy, it's also that we lack the righteousness needed to be delivered from our death. But look at what Jesus does for us. This is the beauty of the gospel in Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, he's saying what Solomon's talking about here in Proverbs 10 is now seen fully apart from that. It is showing us the end of this righteousness. It says this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We need righteousness to save us from death, but the problem is you don't have it, and whatever righteousness you have isn't good enough, so God gives you the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus was relationally faithful to his Father in the mess of it all. He chose what is obedient and true, where we were fickle and distrusted him. He did it perfectly, but in the gospel here shows us that if we can have Jesus' righteousness through that simple act of repenting and having faith in Jesus, then we can trust in God because he's actually shown us and make it attainable to us that we can have something that delivers us from death. The, the gap that stood between you and where you want to go, not dying, has been bridged by grace in Jesus Christ. If your worldly treasure can't save you, here Solomon is saying, look to what can. Look to the God who gives righteousness generously to those who believe. More than that, if he gives us his righteousness through faith, if we're covered by that wonderful gift, then just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so too has your problem with death forever been solved. That there is life eternal for those who believe. The prophet of this provision can't even be touched by death itself. All you have to do is come. That's what we've seen in Proverbs so many times. All you have to do is take this righteousness given to you in faith. Believe that Jesus was faithful where we were in faith, unfaithful. Believe that Jesus took the punishment your sins deserve so that you might get the life that he himself earned. And this is so important because behind this binary life, death, a religious language of righteousness is actually what lays behind all of our desires. Psalm is here honing what we think of when we think of treasure. Because what we would expect if we were reading Proverbs chapter 10 is a contrast that would look like this. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but treasures gained by righteousness do. That's what we would expect. That's the ultimate contrast, isn't it? But that's not what he says. Instead, he says, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers us from death. 
You see, the greatest treasure we have as Christians is the salvation that God richly provides us in Jesus Christ. And he is reorienting it to say, this is not merely of religious significance. This is of a soul-satisfying significance. This is the treasure that Christ has provided what you lack freely in the gospel. We have been restored and the wise man trusts that God has provided abundantly for him in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And secondarily to this, building on this, we see our second point. And this is that God's provision allows us to turn to him. And this is the natural landing point of the first part. If we can trust God, if we affirm that God can save us, that God can give us righteousness that spares us from death, then we should be people, wise people, should be ones who constantly turn to God for provision instead of the fool who turns to other things for provision. And read here with me Proverbs 10, verse three. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the cravings of the wicked. So here's this really stunning contrast, right? This this thought rhyme here, and it gets played out like this. If you're righteous, and looking forward to Romans 3, we see that that is the person who, by faith, has their sins covered by Christ's perfection. If you are righteous, God will provide for you the very thing you hunger for. God will not let the cravings of hunger or the fear of loss overtake you, but he will give you, in his gracious timing, everything you need. But if you are not righteous... Which is to say, if you're one who doesn't trust that God will provide for you in Jesus Christ, if you have turned away from the salvation that God has offered to you, then God also provides something for you, doesn't he? But what does God provide the wicked? He provides a thwart, a constant thwarting of all that you crave. Now it sounds really sinister, And there's a sense behind this word translated here in your Bible as thwarting, as as pushing off. It says that God will literally push off what it is you desire. I want to confess, I'm not a perfect parent, but sometimes my failures make really good sermon illustrations. So that's what we're going to look at today. Don't do any of the things I do, but take the point that's hopefully helpful. And as there is a, a point where one of my daughters, I can't remember which one it was, was old enough to like see what's on the table and kind of reach for things that are on the table. And I was sitting there and she wanted uh, her sippy cup, which is on the table. And so I took the sippy cup and I saw where her grubby little fingers could reach. And I set the sippy cup just beyond her reach, close enough to where she, with all of her might, thought she could actually get it. But I knew that no matter how hard she tried, reached, and squirmed, she couldn't get the water. I pushed it off, close enough where she thought she could get it, but far enough away where she never could. And what God is doing to the wicked in this passage is a very similar thing. He places what you crave in front of you so that you see it, so that you want it, so that you reach for it, but then he thwarts your satisfaction. You can't get to it. Your fingers cannot touch it. And this is why when we grab worldly pleasures like sex or comfort or wealth, as soon as we have it, we realize we have nothing. And we have to reach again. Because he has pushed off the thing that we crave. 
Now, when I did it to my daughter, I was just amused by her struggle. God is a better parent than I am. He's actually doing this because of his mercy and because of his just judgment. You see, it's God's just judgment that we just saw. There's no enduring life for those who live in sin. This pushing off is a foretaste of what happens to those who on judgment day stand apart from Christ's righteousness. You will be separated for all time from God's loving presence and his offer of grace in the gospel. Christianity is not another option in the self-help aisle. Christianity is life and death. And as we struggle to find satisfaction in worldly things, God is reminding you that there is a future for those who reject Christ where your cravings will constantly be thwarted and you will stand apart from God himself for all eternity. But just as it shows God's judgment, it also shows God's mercy, doesn't it? How many of us have pursued the career, the lifestyle, the romance, or the possession we thought would finally satisfy our craving only to have it and find ourselves unfulfilled? How many of us have been crushed by a new career or a new gadget that failed to actually meet its expectations? Or how many of us in our toiling, right? Remember, we toil. That's what we do. In our toiling, in our planning, in our scheming, we look at something that we know is sinful, that's failed us in the past, but we say, this time I've mastered it. This time I have figured out how to enjoy it. And we go with all of our plan into it and we engage with it. And the next morning we wake up and we long for it again. It has failed to satisfy. This thwarting, this pushing off is the kindness of God's provision in your life to keep you from finding satisfaction in things which cannot save. Whether it's dissatisfaction or confusion or frustration when you look at your family life, your career, your wealth, or your adventure, consider that that might be a holy dissatisfaction that God in his mercy is giving you to point you to the only object which can ultimately satisfy. Augustine lived in the fourth century He had wealth, he had a family of cultural privilege of which he was afforded to pursue pleasure, kind of like Solomon, to whatever degree he wanted to. And he actually, in his youth, created a club that was meant to find what he called the happy life. How can I find my best life now? And he realized that in that time, he looked at all of the beautiful things that God created. He turned into those beautiful things. But he realized that those beautiful things were meant to point him to the beautiful God which stood behind all of it. The beautiful God who created all of that. And yet in his blindness, he refused to see that, which meant every beautiful thing he consumed became grotesque to him. Because in consuming its beauty, he realized it didn't satisfy In a quest for happiness, he became more and more disappointed. But one day, God opened his eyes. And this is what he said in realizing this. In in writing to God, he said, You called and cried out loud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent. You put to flight my blindness. 
you were fragrant and I drew in my breath and now pant after you. I tasted you and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. So here's this astounding principle we cannot miss. And that is that both the righteous and the wicked experience hunger in this world. But it's only the righteous who know that when hunger pains of living in this world, which is not heaven, when those pangs come, when temptation rears her head, that we have a God who has promised to come and fill that want with his own peace, to give us exactly what we need to satisfy and to save. Whereas sin is readily available and never satisfying, God has promised himself for those who trust in him. Where is this provision? Well, Jesus makes this clear in John chapter six, where he says this in verse 35. Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So right here, as we are beginning the Proverbs of Solomon, here's the key principle that we must know if the rest of this book is to make any sense. Because the rest of the Proverbs includes wonderfully practical advice. But if you don't see the provision of God in satisfying your hunger and your craving in the person and work of Jesus Christ to atone for our sins, to win us back to God, to solve the problem of death, then we miss all of it. We will never turn towards God. If we don't believe that God ultimately satisfies us in the gospel, then the rest of the Proverbs are junk. They're worth just as much as your second coworker's third cousin twice removed offering an opinion on Facebook. But if we see God's provision in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we know that he will provide for us abundantly at every step of our life. And this is so important when it comes to wisdom because there will be times where the wisdom Solomon prescribes you or the wisdom Solomon prescribes the church will seem difficult, it will seem hard, it will seem fearful, it seems like it will remind you more of what you lack instead of what you have, and we'll only be able to actually act on those principles if we trust that behind every difficult decision stands the provision of God in Jesus Christ, stands the hand who reaches down with Christ's righteousness to satisfy and save us when we turn to him. In other words, you will never choose to live the righteous and wise life if you don't trust that God can actually care for you, that he will never leave you empty. And there's this tension in the book of Proverbs because Proverbs is very much a you-do book. It gives you all sorts of practical advice which you take and you live out. It's got lots of imperatives for the wise person to do. But what undergirds all the practical advice in this book is the idea of God's sovereignty. That God alone is able to sustain the righteous. We will never apply the Proverbs of God unless we believe in the provision of God. 
because it's not wise business practices which bless us. It's not healthy families which bless us. It's not a strong work ethic which blesses us. It is God himself who blesses us by bringing us into an all-satisfying relationship, a death-killing salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. If we miss the God who provides, the practical Proverbs mean us nothing because they're meant to win us to him. He is our treasure. So what does this look like? Here we see this provision of God which shapes the whole of our life, but it can often lead us to passivity. You see, when we talk about the provision of God, when we talk about God's sovereignty, maybe we can encounter a difficult situation in our life and we can think, God's sovereign, God provides, God is faithful, therefore I'll sit back, kick my feet up, and wait for him like this wonderfully divine butler to come and serve me a plate of pleasure. If he doesn't serve me pleasure on my time, well, the problem's with him. Or a secondary misapplication of God's sovereignty is to say, well, if God has promised to save me in Jesus Christ, and if God is faithful to do so, then it doesn't really matter how I live my life. I can live my life how I want to, and when I get to heaven, I get to say to him, you said that I was good. But here, look at how Proverbs closes in leading into our final point, verses four and five. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. And so here we see our last point, and that is in light of God's provision, we are to work heartily for him. Because we trust that God will provide, we actually become busy in working for him. What do we become busy with? What's the implied thing in the context of our passage? With righteousness. We become busy in living life in light of God's provision for us. Not laboring for the treasures of the world, but laboring for the richness of God himself. This righteousness is a righteousness which brings satisfaction to you, blessing to your community, and is lived out of a a desire to glorify the God who saves you. In fact, the word used for slack here, in contrast to diligence, slack doesn't just imply laziness or sloth, but it does. But at the heart of it is actually this tone of deceit. There's a deceitful son in the midst In other words, there are people who pretend as if their life is being lived in service to Jesus, but in all reality, they are deceitfully lazy. They want God to look like they are working for his glory, but instead they are living for their pleasure. They're not pursuing obedience and worship and righteousness and care for others, and they're not doing that because they think that's not what's best for them. But here, Solomon shows us They're the ones in poverty. They're the ones who are going to miss out. They're the ones who have no satisfaction. And whatever satisfaction they have, it is fleeting and will not profit. But in contrast to this is the diligent hand who continues to trust that the labor of righteous living is truly what makes us rich. Remember how Solomon toiled and toiled and toiled, hoping to find pleasure, only to say at the end, it's all vanity, it's all meaningless. Well, here's the wonderful privilege of the Christian life. 
we get put to work. We do not, we, our work doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. But when we're saved by Jesus, we get put to work. We get put in the field. But the promise is, is that life in this field satisfies. That it's really joy producing. That it gives you riches and it blesses those who are around you and it honors God. Look at how Paul puts this in Ephesians 2 in keeping this tension between grace and our works. He says this in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the results of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by our works. We are saved for works. We're saved to be put in the field of a good father. We are saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Look at how James puts this in James 3, verses 13 through 18. And listen to how it intersects with wisdom. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such. I'm in the wrong spot. Where am I? At? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in 413. You're in the right spot. I'm not. Uh, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And here we see this in a personal relationship. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. There's this deceitfulness. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there'll be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And listen here, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Because God richly provides for the righteous, we know as James now says, that there is a harvest of righteousness in which you must walk, in which you get to spend the rest of your life living. Do you hear that wonderful truth? Those of you who feel a lack in this world, there is a harvest for us in the righteousness of God, an abundant harvest that changes how we view God and changes how we interact with others. How many of us actually believe that Jesus' salvation is so sufficient that it provides not weak righteousness, not white knuckle righteousness, not bottom of the toothpaste tube righteousness, a harvest of righteousness. In other words, do you trust that the gospel which saves you is so powerful that it actually changes the way you live and sets the entire course of your life in a different direction? But this is the wonderful nature of God's provision. It puts us to work with wonderfully soul-satisfying labor in whatever it is we do. Do not sleep on this harvest. God wants to do wonderful things through your obedience and your holiness. God wants to reward you in those efforts. And here we see the practical beauty of this. Wherever you are, wherever you are, whatever your relationship or economic status in life, God has provided for you everything you need to put yourself to the task of soul-satisfying, other-blessing, and God-glorifying work. So when you go to work tomorrow or you go home today and you begin to ask yourselves these deep existential questions of what am I here for and what brings me pleasure, 
Your salvation, the provision of God in Jesus Christ answers all of those questions so that when you go into the relationship, when you go into the workplace, when you go into the mountains, you know exactly what it is you're called to do. You are called to live righteously and honor God. This means you could ask yourselves two questions wherever you are. The first question is, how can I show God in this moment my righteous loyalty to him? In other words, how can I show God and therefore speak to my own soul, reminding them that it is not worldly accolades or riches or relationships that satisfy, but only God's free provision of grace in Jesus Christ. That only there do I find my identity. Where is my life showing that I actually trust that God is able to provide what he has promised? That leads us to worship. But our second question is this. And we see this in the relational components of this text. And that's how can my righteous actions bless my community? How does my faithfulness to God and his provision spill over and show others the love of Jesus, the value of Jesus, the service of Jesus, or the truth of Jesus? And here's the wonderful beauty of God's product of grace. It's better than everything else. Because as we look at the centrality of the God who provides as we look at the experience others have with us, we actually get what we want the whole time. It's just in its right place, isn't it? At the end, we get to rest in God's provision. We get the riches of doing what God has called us to do. We get a reminder that God's provision is sufficient for us and that through obedience and faithfulness, though it's hard, God meets all of that with his pleasure and satisfies us. If God has richly provided for you in a gospel which saves you from death, then the gospel he gives you will certainly certainly occupy you in this life as we work in the fields of God's labor. So here's our hope at the beginning of the book of the beginning of this section of Proverbs is that when we see this God and his provision, we actually invite his counsel because we want to work it out. We want to bless others. We want to glorify God. We want all of this joy. And so as we continue in looking at these practical things, we start by looking at the God who has provided all things and say, I'm here for this. God has given me good things in his word and it is our privilege to find him faithful in every area of our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you help us to see what is behind all of our cravings. I pray in here, Lord, that if there are people who, are, who feel oppressed, who feel disheartened by constantly reaching for something that is always evading them, I pray that you would open their eyes to you who has been there calling them to satisfaction through the gospel calling them out of sin and into your marvelous light, calling them out of pleasures which fade and giving them the pleasures of God himself. And Lord, I pray that when we see that, when we learn to trust you with our salvation, that we will then turn to you and trust you with all of our life. That we will see the treasure that our hearts desire as that which is freely given to us in Jesus and that we would want to become busy with the work of righteousness, trusting that you will provide a harvest for those who fear you. We pray that our lives bless our community and glorify you. 
We pray that our city is better because of it. We pray all this in your holy name. Amen.